Thanks, John. My name's Dave. I'm an elder here at God First, and I'm kicking off our new series in Matthew. And it's important to understand the context of a book so that we can understand the text that I'm going to read and its particular meaning for us. Matthew is one of four books in the Bible that tell us an account of Jesus' time on earth. It's often called a gospel. I'm sure you're familiar with the word. Uh, the word gospel means good news. Now, of course, all four books that tell of Jesus' time on earth and his subsequent uh, death and resurrection and ascension into heaven are called gospels. And so, in a way, we, we kind of have four gospels. But actually, we don't. We only have one set of good news, one gospel. There just happen to be four tellings of that gospel. And so strictly, it's most accurate if you're going to use the long word, to, the long name to refer to these books, to refer to them as the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. There is one gospel and four tellings of that good news. That being said, the gospel according to Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospels. It's written primarily for a Jewish audience, and its main purpose is to show this Jewish audience how Jesus is the Messiah that has been prophesied about and has been promised by God throughout the Old Testament. So Matthew links many of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah to Jesus because he wants the Jews to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now Messiah is not a particularly widely used word in the English language at present. And it was a word that was used to refer to the one who would come and save the Jews. And it was widely uh, understood that the coming Messiah would also be the king of the Jews. And the gospel according to Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is this king. In fact, one commentator suggested that the whole of Matthew could be summarized in half of a single verse of an Old Testament prophecy by Zechariah. This is what it says in Zechariah 9 verse 9. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. And that's the message of Matthew. So it should be no surprise that we have entitled this series, Kingdom Come. And we're going to be looking at some of the characteristics of the king, some of the characteristics of the kingdom, and some of the characteristics of the subjects of the kingdom. That would be you and me. And to kick the series off, I have entitled this preach, The Lifesaver is With Us. And I hope that by the end, we will be encouraged by the fact that Jesus not only came to save us, but is with us too. Let's read the passage, and then I'll tell you a story about when I needed saving. I've asked my son, Tim, to read for me. I will be reading from the message, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. 
Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. While he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. God's angel spoke in the dream. Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will bring a son to birth, and when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. This would bring the prophet's embryonic sermon to full term. Watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, Hebrew, for God, for God is with us. Then, Jesus, then Joseph woke up. He did exactly what God's angel commanded in the dream. He married Mary, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had the baby. He named the baby Jesus. Thank you, Tim. Let's pray before I go any further. Father God, we're so grateful that you have given us the Bible, your word of truth. We're grateful that you have given us the book of Matthew to help us understand you and your relationship with us. As I speak, won't you use the next 15 or 20 minutes to help us understand you better? I ask this in your name. Amen. There is so much in that passage. I almost feel like we could do a whole series just on this. Uh, there's Joseph and everything that's going on with him. He's engaged to a girl who's now got pregnant without any of his involvement. Mary is now pregnant, but she hasn't done the socially unacceptable uh, thing of sleeping with a man before she's got married. This is very, very awkward. I'm going to refer in a very small way to the issues that Joseph and Mary faced. And they, they would have continued to face this because they got married anyway. And there would have been some social awkward. But God had called them to be part of his big plan. I'll come back to that right at the end. But I gave you clues about what my points were going to be by putting stuff in the slides in bold. The two names of Jesus. First, Jesus which means God saves, and second, Emmanuel, God is with us. I suspect that by now you may have got to the point where you see, oh, I wonder if that's why Dave called this series or this preach, The Lifesaver is with us. Well, I, I am sometimes a little obvious. So I'm going to start with the Lifesaver bit. I want to tell you a Lifesaver story. Now, lifesavers, and some people call them lifeguards. Interestingly, when I googled lifesaver, I got lots of pictures of red discs that float. And actually, I was thinking about a lifeguard, but lifesaver somehow seems more active. They are particularly cool, especially if they come from a TV series where they look incredible. It's the kind of thing that, the kind of person you would want to save you, even if you weren't in trouble. <clears throat> However, they, lifesavers have two jobs. One, less important, unless you're going to be on TV, which is looking amazing. The other, much more important, which is irrespective of how they live, doing their job, fulfilling what they are called of saving lives. And if you find yourself in need of being saved, you don't care what they look like. All you need is to be saved. 
A few years ago, I had an experience where I needed saving. I went kayak fishing off the coast of northern KwaZulu-Natal with some friends. Now, kayak fishing combines two skills, the ability to kayak in the sea and the ability to fish. I'm good enough at fishing, but my sea kayaking skills fall into the category of should not go into the sea. However, the way I'm wired is I treated that as a largely a largely a small detail. I treated it as a small detail and I was determined not to let my lack of ability get in the way of a good time. So when the guide got us together for the briefing the night before and he asked us of our experience in the sea on kayaks, I said, I'm a beginner. I should be fine. That I suppose was true. I was a beginner, but like at the B of beginner, not the beginner of beginner. I, I should have said, I'm incompetent. I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. But that may have spoiled the fun. So I didn't go into that level of detail. The next morning, we got to the beach with our kayaks, which had fishing rods in the works. And from the beach house, the sea had looked quite calm. Of course, it wasn't. By the time we got to the beach, the sea hadn't changed, but how we saw it had changed, and it was choppy, and the back line, the last line of the waves that we had to get out to, looked very far away. We got in our kayaks, and I was very proud of myself. I managed to get through the first set of waves, the little shore break, without falling off. And I caught up with my friends who were more capable than me, and the idea is that you get past the shore break, and then you wait in the relative calm until there's a gap in the big waves. And when the big waves ease off and there's a gap between the sets, you paddle like the Russian mafia is chasing you in the hope that you get past the back line before a big dumper comes to eat your boat. My friends got through. I got nearly through. As we took off, I just couldn't get any traction because I ran out of ability very quickly. I hit the first wave, I got through, I hit the second, but I just wasn't fast enough. And, I, well, I hit the third one, but the third one hit me. And unlike the pictures you see, I, me and the boat parted company. I fell off. The life jacket I had on was a handout from somebody else. It wasn't great. My boat disappeared off to the shore. And I was stuck in water that was much deeper than me, waves washing over my head, desperately holding onto a paddle, going, oh dear. Now, I've been in the sea long enough to know that the first thing you should do is stay calm, and I managed that for a while. And so I was desperately trying to paddle with some shoes on and a, a paddle in my one hand back to shore, but I really wasn't getting any traction. And I was starting to run out of calm. So I started looking around, and of course, everybody else, including the guide, had got through the back line. Wonderfully, the guide could count, and he worked out that there was one per party, one member of the party less than there should be, and he came back looking for me. And I saw him about 100 yards away, and I started calling to him. I wasn't calm in the call. It was very panicky. I'm not proud of it. But at that point, I didn't care. I just needed him to pay me attention and come and fetch me. And uh, he came. He saw me. He came. I grabbed on the back of his boat. He paddled into the beach. Uh, he checked that I was okay. I was, I mean, big picture, I was okay. I wasn't dead. I wasn't vomiting. I didn't need an ambulance. But I was exhausted. And I just needed some time on the beach to pull myself together. So he checked that I was in that state, and then he went off 
to, uh, uh, to meet up with the rest of the guys who were out actually doing the fishing part of kayak fishing. So, in some ways, Jesus is a bit like that fishing guide who dragged me out of the water because Jesus saves, and the guide saved me. I don't know if I would have drowned. It's really hard to know, but I was in enough trouble to feel like I needed a savior. But if we say that Jesus is like the fishing guide, let's be clear on how Jesus is like the fishing guide. I think the first question to be clear on is the question, what does Jesus save us from? I got saved from drowning. Jesus saves us from our sins. If we look at the text, this is what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves, and he explains it, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, the original Jewish audience to whom Matthew was writing would have understood this sentence without any help. <clears throat> they clearly understood from everything that God had told them over hundreds and actually thousands of years that he set a very high standard of behavior and character that they couldn't meet. They failed to meet God's standards so often that there was actually a whole chunk of God's law that he had given them to explain to them what they should do each time they blew it. There was a list of sacrifices and which sacrifice you needed to make for which sin. In addition, there was an annual day of fasting and prayer where the Jews, notwithstanding the fact that they had offered sacrifices, would cry out to God for forgiveness. They would fast and pray and ask him to forgive them. This was taken very seriously because the consequences of unforgiven sin was eternal punishment and separation from God instead of being eternally with him. So Jesus' promise to save the Jews from their sins was a big one. It's not a small deal because it would have to be big enough to supersede all of the sacrifices and all of the annual praying for forgiveness. You see also how it changes the locus of responsibility because the Jews were on this treadmill of having to ask for forgiveness and give sacrifices and try and almost buy back pay the price of their sin and they were on this treadmill of paying and then what this says is instead of saving yourself Jesus will save you from your sins it changes the dynamic it's no longer our responsibility to save ourselves and it's a responsibility we can't fulfill the Jews knew we couldn't fulfill it and we know that too so this would have been very good news to the Jewish audience because sin and righteousness were very big themes in the relationship with God. So what does this mean for us? Well, the rules of sin and its consequences have not changed. It's not like there was one rule then and there's another rule now. No, the Bible teaches us that the consequence of sin is eternal judgment from God because sin, and when we say sin, what we mean in any act of disobedience or rebellion against God. So he's written down a bunch of things, but actually most sin comes down to, the, to us deciding that he's not king and we are. I know how to do things. I'm going to do what I want. That phrase is an act of rebellion because you're not saying I submit to the king. You're saying I submit to myself. 
Those acts of sin are so offensive to God that the consequences thereof is eternal judgment. That's where the phrase hell came from. That's where you or I are destined if we have unforgiven sin. If we have not been saved from our sin, we are destined for hell. It's quite heavy. It's worse than drowning because it goes on forever and ever. You may think that's a bit unfair. Hey, I'm trying to be good, but God is perfect and he has set a perfect standard. And so it is appropriate when you're perfect to be deeply offended by those who aren't. The other thing that we have learned is there really is nothing we can do to save ourselves. This is illustrated in the Old Testament by the Jewish cycles of sacrifices and fasting and repenting. They were doing it because they kept blowing it. Notwithstanding that, the Jews knew that they had to throw themselves at God's mercy. And actually, if you look at yourself, you'll know you can't meet a standard of righteousness consistently. We know we blow it. Like, I know I blow it. And to know that there is someone who comes with an offer that says, I will save you from all of that stuff that you do, is an incredible offer. And this is what it is. is Not only is God deeply offended by our sin, but he loves us so much that he makes a plan to come and save us from the consequences of the stuff that we are doing that offends him. It is incredible. Jesus, God himself, came as a baby, grew into a man, lived a perfect life, and then was unjustly killed. And the shedding of perfect blood, the death of a perfect one, is enough to cover our sins. Not just once a year or not just the little sins that you have to do this sacrifice for. No, Jesus' sacrifice covered everything. All of our sins in the past, all of our sins in the future. That is the ultimate act of saving us. All we have to do is ask. Think about me in the sea. All I brought to the process of being saved was my inability and my panicky calling out, desperately hoping the, life, the God would see me. And this is all we have to bring to Jesus to ask him to save us, is an acknowledgement of our sin and asking him to forgive us. And he has come to save his people. That really is good news. Now, you may go, yeah, I get it. That sounds right for useless people. Like Dave was useless in the sea and he needed a guide to save him. I can see how that applies to useless people. But actually, I'm like Dave's other mates who got out past the back line all by themselves. They didn't need a savior. Well, that's where my story breaks down. It's not a complete story because the Bible teaches that every single one of us have sinned and cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that you can do. Whatever good you do, and you may be very good, it does not compensate for your sin. You can't offset. It's not like carbon credits, carbon offsets. You make a fire here, you plant a tree there, you break even. No. Once you've sinned, you've got a problem that you cannot fix. 
And this is why. If the story about sea kayaking was to be better, it would be that the waves were massive, nobody got to the back line, everyone was drowning. But there is a God who can save. Now, in that way, Jesus is a bit like that fishing guide who fished me out of the water. But in another way, it's different. Because once I was not in any danger, the guide left me. And I had an hour or hour and a half of just sitting along with my inability and my failure while I was pulling myself towards myself. But this is where it's different because Jesus never leaves us. Let's look at his second name. Emmanuel. Jesus, God himself, was born as a baby and lived amongst us for 33 years about. And after he died and rose again, he ascended into heaven and then God sent God the Holy Spirit to be with us. I'm not just making this up. I'm going to read two verses that just underpin why this is significant. The first is one describing Jesus. This is by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus came to be in the mess with us. And he didn't live in a fancy house, with, like isolated in a cocoon from all of the stuff that we as humans face. He, he was born to a desperately poor couple. He lived amongst a nation that was deeply oppressed, faced with injustices all the time, and then he was murdered unjustly. He has been with us. And when you go, yeah, Jesus, but you don't understand, it's not true. He does. He empathizes with us. And then you go, oh, okay, that was great for the disciples, but Jesus ascended into heaven. What's with that? It's not with me anymore. This is what Jesus said. Shortly before he ascended, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so we have this wonderful situation of never being Without God, because He is with us. He has been here physically and He is with us now. There is no truth to the idea that God is distant or remote. And this is actually not a new idea. Jesus epitomized it, but actually, God has been near all the time. In Deuteronomy, is one of the early books in the Bible. Moses was encouraging the Jews as they were about to re-enter the promised land. And this is what he said. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So he is with us. But he's promised it through thick and thin. He's not just with us for the high fives and the parties and the graduations and the pay increases. 
He's with us for the COVID and the retrenchments and the I've got no money and I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids. He's with us all the time. And that is incredible. How is he with us? He's there to strengthen you, to comfort you, to mature you. The encouragement is be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and terrified. This is what we get from enjoying God with us. But now there is a little bit more to my story. It's not, of course, it's a human story. It doesn't fully express God's relationship with us. But there is a bit more. Because when the guide got back to my, uh, to my mates who were out there busy fishing, the guy who'd organized the trip said, hey, where's Dave? And the guy said, no, I left him on the beach. He said, no, go back and fetch him. So the guide came back. He called me from the beach house. And he said, do you want to go out? I said, yeah, but I can't. He said, don't worry, come with me. And he put me in a double. He put me in the place where you didn't have to have much skill. He took all the responsibility. He coached me. He told me when to paddle. And he compensated for when I couldn't paddle properly because my technique was lousy. So we got out past the beach break. We waited, we waited. And he said, go. And we went. And I thought I was being amazing because we got out. But actually, it wasn't me who got us out. It was the guide. And so I got out to the back line. And actually, Jesus is like this. He is like our uber guide. Because he comes, he fishes us out of where we're drowning. He drags us to the beach. He helps us. He doesn't leave us there. Like I was left with my failure and misery and exhaustion. He remains with us. And then he puts us with him. And he says, come, let's go. I will work with you and in you to get you to the destination. And that destination is eternity with God. What an incredible offer. So much better than getting past the back line to go fishing. It's a promise of eternity with God. And we have a Savior who is with us. The lifesaver is with us. And this is something to reflect on. In two ways. You may be drowning, fallen off your boat. You can't get out by yourself. You haven't asked the lifesaver to save you. But the invitation is open to you right now. It's always been open. And actually, it will be open tomorrow. I need to tell you the truth. It will be open tomorrow. But you may be dead by then. So you can wait. But I would really suggest you don't. Because I don't want you to run out of time and miss the opportunity to be saved by the lifesaver. Secondly, you may have been saved by the lifesaver, but you're not actually enjoying being with him in the boat. Maybe you've forgotten that he saved you. Maybe you're neglecting him. Maybe you're not calling out to him for help on an ongoing basis. That's good practice. If he has saved you, are you enjoying his nearness? Are you grateful for his salvation? These are great questions to reflect on. We're going to do that as we move back into worship and then go into communion. And whether you have been saved or not, this is an important thing to reflect on, is the extent to which you want the lifesaver who is with us to be with you.